it's june twentieth and this is jennifer stock and i'm out on another research cruise with cordell bank national marine sanctuary on the research vessel pulmar which is the shared research vessel between monterey bay, gulf of the farallones and cordell bank national marine sanctuary we'll be heading out to cordell bank today to do our monthly monitoring program where it's called the cordell bank ocean monitoring program where we do transects throughout the sanctuary, monitoring for seabirds and mammals and anything else that might be on the surface, such as debris or, plot or uh, blue sharks, molas, ocean sunfish, and uh, also do some oceanographic sampling along the way. So we'll be talking with some of the folks on board, observers today, um, the cruise leader today, and, and uh, try to catch some of the notes from the field. Thanks for joining us today. been a pretty windy spring here in the Point Reyes region and all up and down the coast. I was very curious to see if we'd actually make it out this week. A lot of uh, other boats have not been able to make it out to the ocean because of the high winds and huge swells. One of the larger NOAA ships on the fleet, the MacArthur II, is a 224-foot vessel um, it's actually at uh, Drake's Bay the last few days hasn't been able to get out and do the work that it was scheduled to do doing a lot of net sampling in the in the water but I think they were able to get out today just like we were uh, the swells have calmed down and it's really quite beautiful less than five less than ten knots of wind beautiful visibility um, really nice for trying to spot marine mammals and seabirds so looking forward to it I think we're going to get some some good data today and, and see what the spring is delivering on the surface of the water. So I'm standing here with Peter Pyle and we just finished the first transect and a CTD just starting to move to the next one and Peter Pyle's here to describe the scene because we're in a really interesting area. Yeah, we're out up toward the outer edge of Cordell Bank, and there's an awful lot of albatross, more than we usually see. We just uh, counted 102 albatross within about um, a kilometer of the boat, just doing a circle around while we were taking the CTD reading. Uh, we also had three pair of orca killer whales, uh, very large males come by, a lot of... Um, shearwaters and cats and zocklets and some northern fur seals so generally indicates a lot of uh, life out here which is good we had two years of lower productivity and now this year it seems like um, the upwelling winds have returned and the productivity's back so the birds should be rebounding pretty nicely from the the two down down years so what is this uh, front line here that you're seeing and what is this caused by uh, we're crossing right over a frontal zone, we call them. It's a boundary between two water masses. Um, when there's California current is strong and comes down, um, there's a lot of sort of swirling and mixing that occurs around the edges of the current. And uh, we're um, right on the edge of one of those, uh, or boundary between two water masses. And a lot of food typically concentrates along them, and that's why we're 
seeing quite a few albatross right now in a northern fur seal uh, just all concentrated right along this um, frontal zone and I think it seemed like the orca were attracted to it as well now there's the phone we need the to get the phone all right it's a busy time on the bridge here um, we're getting ready for our next so, movement uh, northern Fulmore. <clears throat> All right, so we're moving away now. Does this mean we're going to the next transect area? Yeah, so we started at the north. We do six lines, each of about 12 or 13 kilometers in length. Takes about 40 minutes per line. Um, and we census all of the birds uh, within 200 meters on one side of the vessel as we're going along. And then we census all of the um, marine mammals within 600 meters on both sides of the vessel. And um, so uh, albatross we also try to do within 600 meters on both sides. But today it's kind of challenging because of the numbers of albatross we're seeing. Does, it, does this seem like a normal, an abnormally large amount of albatrosses for this time of year? Or is this a time when they're normally foraging here? Yeah, well, interestingly, things have changed here uh, because they used to do um, drag fishing where they drag the bottom and bring a lot of stuff up. And... The albatross learned to come and follow those boats um, and uh, and pick up the uh, discard. Uh, so actually in the last, now those vessels have been banned from the Cordell Bank region and the number of albatross we've seen out here have dropped a lot since then. Uh, but now it's nice to see good numbers of them again and this is actually a natural situation. So there must be some food their main uh, food items are squid. It's possible that these Humboldt squid that have been around have something to do with it, uh, but there's, there surely has to be some sort of food resource that's around um, right now to attract them all. So we'll see what we can see today to try to figure that out. If you know, if we don't see anything, it could be something that comes up only at night. We were talking to Lisa Etherington, our research coordinator. She's on the MacArthur right now with. PRBO and they're doing um, net sampling and she mentioned that they caught a couple um, juvenile squid, larval squid, they don't know what species but might be some squid hanging out in the water column. Yeah those are they're called market squid those small ones um, that's the one that the fisheries are real interested in as well and um, there have been more squid around lately um, I kind of think that the overfishing that's typically been happening has maybe been a good thing for squid populations in the Pacific and which in turn is a good thing for the albatross but you know then it's a bad thing for the fish and other things so you know we have to be careful when we're when we're upsetting the balance of nature out here a lot of different cycles going on cool well thanks Peter we'll talk to you in a little bit as we're uh, moving on to a new area So we just started transect two, and I'll I'll try to get our microphone in. You can hear some of the observations that we're seeing. I'm not going to keep it on the whole time, though. It's 30 minutes, and sometimes there's these fast moments. Sometimes there are these slow moments where they're seeing lots of observations. These ashes getting up the water here. Nice.
minute two, black footed albatross, one sitting, zone three. Thirty-five flying three zero in zone two. Minute sixteen, Cassin's Auckland. Want to give a direction for the auklets? Yeah, they're flying three zero. Three zero. <clears throat> what zone were they flying to in fifteen? They were in two, in, in zone two. Minute sixteen was thirty on the water in zone one. 50 on the water in zone 2. Minute 17, Cassin's all clear. <laughs> Seventeen was sixty cassins on the water in zone two. Twenty cassins on the water in zone one. Ten, ten flying in zone two. Flying direction was three zero. Minute eighteen cassins all clear. It's not usually this busy. Don't worry. good <laughs> So Cassin's auklets are out foraging during the day and they come back to the nests on the islands at night? Yeah, that's correct. And it's like, you, I remember being out there and hearing it's just this massive sound of they're all arriving at the same time. Or do they all arrive, arrive at the same time? Or? Uh, yeah, there seems to be a big push right in the first hour or so after it gets dark. If they come in earlier, the western gulls will attack them and, and, Try to get their food. and kill them and actually kill them and eat them. Oh. Um, so well, that's why they come in at night. And it's nice to see all these cassins out here. Um, it probably indicates there's a lot of krill, which is what you'd expect from a year like this where we've had a lot of upwelling. A lot of wind. Yeah. So do they do the um, parents regurgitate to the chicks on the nest? How yeah. do they feed the chicks? They have a pouch called a guler pouch that is in their neck. And they can fill that up with, with krill. 
and and sometimes some fish and other things and then um, and then they come back and uh, and cough it back up to feed their chicks some for themselves some for the chicks yeah undoubtedly they're getting um, getting some nutrition off of it as well mm-hmm. and yeah that's a that's an interesting question we don't know a lot about it how the adult chooses what to eat itself and what to then save for its chick yeah, but when when food is plenty which is I'm sure going to be the case this year they probably don't have to worry about it too much because um, you know there's plenty plenty to go around and rhinoceros auklets do the same thing forage during the day uh yeah and they go out to deeper water and go for and they can dive deeper and they specialize on different species of fish that live at mid-water levels some uh, particularly these ones called saris and um, also anchovies and rockfish so they're probably a little bit more adaptable than the cassin's auklets are during poor food years um yeah the, the cassins are really dependent on the krill whereas um rhinoceros auklets uh, their their food source is a little bit more stable the other thing is that on good upwelling years, there's a lot of rockfish, and all of the seabirds eat that. But then on, on poor upwelling years, like the last couple, there's no rockfish. And, but then on those warmer water years, you'll tend to get anchovies coming up in higher numbers, so a lot of them will go and switch to the anchovies. It's sort of like a plan B. When there's no rockfish, there'll be anchovies. Mm-hmm. And then the really interesting thing now is that the Pacific sardine is coming back and um, this was a a fish that was wiped out during the late 40s and 50s in part perhaps by the um, cannery row and the big sardine fisheries that operated out of Monterey and San Francisco and so they were they've been gone from the region for about 60 years but now are coming back and uh, it'll be exciting to see how the birds respond to, to the return of the sardines. That crash was also partly because of the oceanographic conditions at that time, wasn't it? It was kind of like they hit the fishery really hard, and at the same time, the fisheries, the sardines were in uh, smaller numbers due to the ocean conditions. Yeah, there's debate about that. Um, the sardines, apparently, in the historical record, go through these big cycles naturally. Uh-huh. Anyway, so it's it's likely, in my estimation, that that they were on a downturn in their cycle because um, sardines are one of those fishes that breed really quickly and are in very high numbers. So it's kind of hard for me to imagine that they can get wiped out by a fishery, unlike the larger species that are take a longer time to breed. Those are the ones that are a lot more vulnerable. But the sardines. Um, but on the other hand, sardines, you can uh, catch them really easily because their response to a predator, including boats, is to ball up into a huge ball. So it was very easy for the, um, for the fishing fishermen to find, you know, ball them all up and then surround the whole ball with a net and pull them all out. So. Thanks. We're still in a huge mass of auklets. Are they still as abundant as we were seeing earlier on this transect? Dropping a little bit. Dropping a little it's, bit. No, not much. Should see a blue one. That would be really good to see. I haven't seen a blue in two years. Yeah. They'll be here, I'm sure.
it's it's right in the time when they're supposed to be coming in. So I'm sitting here with Michael Carver, who is the operations coordinator at Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary and has been leading this Cordell Bank Ocean Monitoring Program for the last few years. And Michael, um, what are the main goals of this study? Initially, uh, we were just looking at distribution and abundance of seabirds and marine mammals, um, trying to come up with baseline data. Uh, for years, naturalists have been coming to Cordell Bank and the surrounding waters of Gulf of the Fairlands uh, in birding trips, um, but there hadn't been a lot of documentation um, specifically uh, over Cordell Bank. And so for the first few years, um, that was one of our primary goals, and we're starting to, to notice that uh, now, the, the seasonal trends as well, well as the year-to-year -year variation. And in the last year or two, there's been an additional um, addition, adding in oceanographic data as well. And how about correlating the, date, the oceanographic data with the birds and the mammals? We're just starting to uh, incorporate the oceanographic data, and the, the time series is quite young, so to speak. But um, we're starting to see the hotspots with um, the chlorophyll A concentrations and, and some of the um, sort of our obligate feeders, specifically um, the Cassin's auklets, uh, and noticing higher densities over um, Cordell. Um, you know, these, these birds which are feeding on krill um, tend to be congregating on the northern portions of the bank, um, and we can't say for sure. Um, it, we can just say there's a correlation now, uh, and that's about it. So this year, I mean, earlier, on one of the earlier transects, we just saw hundreds and hundreds of auklets. What was it like last year for auklets from your experience on the water? Yeah, from the surveys last year, um, very low numbers. Um, and the year before, um, when they were getting almost none uh, in the surveys down uh, that are going on in Gulf of the Fairlands by PRBO, um, on, in October of 2005, we did notice um, decent numbers in the, in the northern portions of Cordell Bank, but uh, we're definitely this year seeing a, a lot more uh, than we saw last year. It'll be exciting to hear how the breeding is going on the Farallon Islands where they're at. How about albatross? I've never been out here and seen so many albatross in my entire eight years with <laughs> the sanctuary. Okay, not that yeah. long. But still, it's pretty exciting, and, I, and you know, I'm not out here all the time, but this, is this the hot time of year when they're foraging here? Yeah, they're just now um, ending their trips back to the nest and uh, now at the end of June. And this is the most I've seen as well. You know, just in one a spot count we had in earlier in the day, we had 100 um, that Steve Howell counted uh, in, in just doing a 360-degree yeah, count. Yeah, Peter mentioned this earlier. We were talking about it. Uh, it's, yeah, so really, really high numbers. Cool. How about um, whales? We haven't seen too many whales today, but do we have any idea of where, where the prey might be? kind of you know it's hard to tell yeah you know we're, we're still seeing sort of the customary gray whales close to shore on our on our way out to Cordell Bank but um, in my experience the marine mammal counts are still um, relatively low than they had been in, in previous years so still pretty early in the season too it is. It is. so as far as um, it's been a couple of years now of gathering data and starting to put some trends together month to month of abundance and diversity where how can how can this data help the sanctuary in regards to management in, in getting an idea of when you know birds are, are coming off the nest and, and when they're over Cordell Bank, for example, if, if there was an oil spill, a lot of times what they look to is, you know, do we use dispersants or do we not? Um, and in knowing uh, what birds are out there and when uh, and their behavior uh, will really allow the sanctuary superintendent and, and others to, to make the call on whether to use, for example, like a dispersant. Mm -hmm. um, 
And yeah, that would be a, a good example. I suppose for future proposed activities too, we'd have more of an idea of the time of year and areas of the sanctuary that would be more vulnerable um, than others. Yes, that as well. Cool. Um, so where are you seeing the future of this program go? This has been an exciting year in that we've been able to test doing the monitoring program on the larger sanctuary research vessel, the Fulmar. Do you think you'll be able to continue using the Fulmar for during surveys? It's my hope that this program will continue um, regardless of the vessel into the future. You know, in looking to other uh, biological data sets which go on for an extended period of time, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, such as the Farallon Islands, um, they really start to gather a lot of power, so to speak, um, when, when you have that time series. And uh, with CBOMP um, being federally funded, if we continue to get um, funded in the way that we are, um, my hope is that it would continue. Um, and we'll really be able to start to speak to uh, sort of the larger trends and, and once El Nino comes and goes and, and, and sort of correlate the local activity. So we also have another oceanographic tool on board that we just put in the water last month. This oceanographic buoy, number 46025, coming soon to the NCD, NCD, I always mess NDBC. this up. NDBC website where folks can find buoys and get weather information. This is a important buoy for all the oceanographic studies out here. What is it going to be able to um, tell us in regards to data and long-term well, trends? One, one of the things that the I know the fishermen are going to love about 46095 is uh, is is chlorophyll and sea surface temperature. A lot of times when they're looking at you know where the fish are, uh, sea surface temperature and, and, and gradients are really helpful for them. Um, and unlike Terrafin and, and other sites where they'll have to pay for it, they can just go to NDBC and get this information for free. Um, and it's very beneficial for us at the sanctuary um, in, in trying to understand the influence of not only San Francisco Bay and the freshwater, water, freshwater which might be coming up this way, but also um, looking at Cordell Bank as a possible um, energetic input um, for um, sort of the Gulf of the Fairlands. For, for food, you mean? Like energetic input in the sense of food production? Well, the, the idea that maybe there's, there's retention going on around here, allowing um, there to be um, blooms, and then that sort of feeding uh, several days downstream and um, um, to, to allow chlorophyll blooms, and then that sort of working its way up the food web. And um, being able to document that, having, the, again, a, a strong time series with the buoy collecting data every hour, continuously, you know, all year long, uh, we'll be able to look at that um, in sort of conjunction with um, CTDCast that we do off uh, during our sea bomb cruises um, to really get a good picture of what's going out here oceanographically. Up until now, there, the West Project um, was one of the few that, that really looked at um, sort of larger scale what's going on, uh, and there haven't been directed studies just over Cordell Bank. That's so exciting. Yeah, it really is. Lisa Etherington, our research coordinator, uh, is already uh, working on grants to try and uh, describe um, some of the convergence zones, which are which we started to look at during CBOMP, but really haven't um, sort of delineated or defined. And yeah, it's going to be an exciting time. Who is there any other partners involved in regards to wanting to study this area and help correlate the data? Yeah, John Largier of Bodega Marine Lab is, has been a, a huge supporter. I, I know he was on one of your previous shows. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he's he's wonderful, and and he's been working closely with us uh, both on. 46095, uh, the buoy project that we're doing in collaboration with Bodega Marine Lab, um, as, as well as with Lisa, um, and I think he's going to be maybe a co-author on a future paper. 
That's exciting. Yeah. So uh, what's the time period of when you think that, I know it, there's always lots of logistics of, you know, putting an instrument in the ocean and expecting it to function right away. And, and of course, there's lots of little details to settle. When do you think that buoy will be live online that the public would be able to view it and be able to see the wind speeds out at Cordell Bank and the chlorophyll? Yeah, well, you know, we, we just launched it uh, just a little less than a month ago, and our programmer is working furiously to um, you know, get the data populated and transferred to NDBC. We have it live on the web right now, but it's just on a test site. We want to make sure it's very stable. So our hope is by the end of the summer that data will be available uh, into perpetuity for the public. Cool, we'll definitely make it available when we know um, that it's functioning and live. Well, thanks, Michael, for spending a few minutes. This has been a really fun day. I'm going to try to get Steve and Peter here some of their observations. It's been a little slow in the last few minutes. We had a really exciting transect early on with orcas and fur seals and uh, hundreds of auklets. So maybe uh, we'll catch a few more on the way back. Wonderful. Well, thanks again, Jenny. You bet. Black-footed albatross one flying 140 zone two. General impressions about, I mean, Steve and Peter, both of you have spent many, many hours, many days, months at sea, and there's days where there's lots to see, and there's days where there's nothing to see. What is the general impression of the nearshore versus offshore, I mean, way offshore, like 200 miles, as far as abundance of life in California? Well, the California current and the upwelling is, are both relatively coastal events and the influences of those events usually extend out to maybe 60 or 80 miles but it's variable. Um, that's where the ocean productivity is in the high, higher biomass and of course the higher abundances of birds and then once you get into that central Pacific water mass starting anywhere from 50 to 150 miles offshore once you get fully into it, productivity drops off a lot and so does bird density. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times when you're doing this, there's a lot of moments where you're just watching and watching. You were commenting on that earlier, Steve, but I'd have to really record a lot of silence to get an accurate description of monitoring out here. <laughs> yep, that's true. It's, uh, <laughs> you can go six hours without a bird sometimes. Yeah, six hours. My worst day was 14 hours, two birds. Wow. In California, California yeah, current? It, it was offshore California. It was 200 miles off of Southern California. Wow. You gotta keep looking. There's always that hope. You never know what's gonna happen. Steve, are there's been some uh, um, other areas where you've been, where there's um, long transits of lack of life. You said you just came back from a cruise recently, Japan to New Zealand or New Zealand to Japan? Yeah, New Zealand to Japan goes through a lot of tropical water. Generally the, the two biggest deserts on the planet are the tropical Pacific and the tropical Atlantic Oceans. Even though they're water, they're deserts with oases of land where the little islands are, but the water is just dead blue water. Not a lot of Flying there. fish, not much food, just blue and very few birds. Mm -hmm. Hours with one day zero birds. I spent all day looking, another day two birds, the next day two birds, only one of which was close enough to identify, so there's some pretty dead time transiting those waters. That's what's amazing, the ocean is so dynamic, day to day, minute to minute, you never know what's 
what's going to be there but there are certain areas that are a little bit less productive than others well we're going to keep transiting along here and we'll keep our eyes open for more birds and mammals What a great day on the water. It was really exciting to participate on the Cordell Bank Ocean Monitoring Program that specific day with so many wildlife sightings. I want to just thank Peter Pyle and Steve Howell, our, our two seabird experts that come out on the cruise and help identify the birds for their time, and Michael Carver, our operations coordinator. Um, also wanted to just mention uh, thanks to the folks on the earlier part of the crew, uh, first half of the show, um, Dan Howard, our sanctuary superintendent, uh, Dale Roberts, the cruise leader, and Bob Lee, who is um, a fish expert with State Fish and Game. Also Shannon Lyday for spending some time helping identify birds. It was great to be out with all these folks in the field. I'm always honored to be able to spend time with folks that really know um, the wildlife and, and what's going on and studying it. So all these cruises that we do and all the research we're doing is really help, helping to understand this ecosystem. It is so dynamic and changing through, throughout the days, year to year, uh, large scale, small scale, and it's going to only help us to understand uh, global events as they go on over time and what the effects could have on the ecosystem through these research programs. So stay tuned. Uh, listening to Ocean Currents, we'll bring in other scientists to talk about some of these findings um, throughout this uh, session here at 5.30 to 6.30. Thanks again for joining me today on Ocean Currents. I hope you've enjoyed hearing a little bit behind the scenes of what goes on out there. Um, I'll hope to do that again with, with other research expeditions. Ocean Currents is brought to you by West Marine Community Radio on KWMR and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. Thanks for listening.